This is Cinepunked. This episode, Targets. The summer of 1968. The high-profile assassinations of activist Martin Luther King Jr. and politician Robert F. Kennedy served as a backdrop to the release of the latest low-budget thriller produced by King of the Bee Pictures, Roger Corman. Targets was the debut feature from critic-turned-filmmaker 28-year-old Peter Bogdanovich. Made in two weeks, it brought together the old-world cinematic gothic horror in the form of Boris Karloff, alongside contemporary fears in the form of Tim O'Kelly's gun-wielding Vietnam vet. The result was a provocative and explosive drama that resonates even today. Hello, I'm your host, Robert J.E. Simpson, and joining me on this edition of the Cinepunk Podcast are my dear friends and colleagues, Dr. Rachel Kelly. Hello. And Ben Simpson. Hello. So I just want to say at the off that Targets has been on my list for this show ever since we began recording. And it's unashamedly one of my favourite pictures. And I've long fancied putting this on as a drive-in movie for reasons which I suspect we might get around to discussing. Um, but at the time of recording, this is early January 2022. And we're doing the show today to mark the passing just last week of the film's director, Peter Bogdanovich, at the age of 82. Um an unfortunate timing for us to have a look at what is, I think, a great film. But I, I, I mean, I'm interested to see uh, where this conversation goes and what you made of it. Um, not least because, as I say, I, I am a, a bit of a fan. Um, yeah. Any thoughts to start us off? Well, you've made us watch a lot of weird stuff, Robert. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> this was pretty spectacular. Um, I mean. It, I'm not going to say that, you know, um, you, you come up with obscure film titles I've never heard of and I go, oh, because I don't, I really don't. I go, oh, I haven't heard of that. I probably should have. But very often I, I then sit down and watch them like <laughs> this tells me more about Robert's psyche than I care to, to know, I think. Um, I mean, there was that weird James Bond thing that you got us to watch. That was fun. But this, this was just, I started watching it and immediately I was just like, why have I not seen this film before? This is brilliant. Just from the very openings, I mean, this is a film. This is this is pure Hollywood new wave. Um, it's it's an absolutely gloriously, unashamedly Hollywood new wave. I have seen so many films, um, novel director, um, sort of extravaganza, and it's just fabulous. I loved it. I mean, I'm I'm shocked that I've got a thumbs up from Rachel from the off. This is not a. <laughs> I mean, it's as well we record these things for posterity because nobody would ever believe it if I told them. Um, yeah, rest on your laurels because it'll not happen again. <laughs> uh, ben, I'm interested in your kind of gut response to this one. At the start, I was like, what is this? This is weird. <laughs> and then it, it it develops and then I'm like, oh, okay, right, right, okay, um, interesting. And then, um, then it de develops even more and I'm like, all right, okay, what's the motive other than you're a psycho? <laughs> um, you d never really get down to that other than him trying to have a conversation with his yeah. wife and her obviously being late for work. And it just kind of brushes them off. Um, it's a bit, <laughs> bit, bit... Bit weird, um, kind of, kind of cool. Um, a typical American family at dinner: mom and dad, their beautiful daughter-in-law, and their only son, Joe, a homicidal maniac. 
How's your dad? It's okay. There you go. Thanks a lot. What's your hunt this time? I'm gonna shoot some pigs. Targets, a movie about a war inside a man's head. things I loved about it though um I suppose you know you're just you're just kind of post Hayes code Hollywood so mm. whenever you have somebody doing something unspeakable um you know Hollywood's had these codes that sort of say well you know we do have to make sure that he always gets his comeuppance and that you know it's it's completely inexplicable and it's not just your evil just exists um and and there's not much you can do about it guys so you know this is pure this guy just snapped and um what was the that's reason, what we're though? doing so well, it, i think vietnam vet that that's what i keep he, on reading although is I he not... a vietnam vet or Apparently, was it not his dad you, you see him in his his uniform i know was that I, not I his totally, dad no i know I, it took me a minute as well um i can't quite remember when that clicked for me but yeah I've, I've seen this film multiple times and it still doesn't click for me. It's only that I've read it half a dozen times this week that he's a Vietnam vet, that it <laughs> registers that he's a Vietnam vet. Honestly, I, it's never registered before. Um, I just thought he was pure psychopath, but it does add a, a different kind of connotation onto it because... It's part of that I, whole counterculture thing. It's part of that whole protest, that sort of scream of rage. Well, I, I mean, I think... And it's early for it. We we would... I mean, nowadays, if, if you were to shoot this film today, and I, I, I think that you know I'm, I'm assuming that if you've listened to i mean i'm, I'm not having to do, preface every pod with this i'm assuming that you've seen the film before you get into this because there are going to be spoilers ahead all right um i mean what we've just said to you is pretty much what you'll get in the advertising for the film so there's not a, a great revelatory um spoiler in that um but I, I recommend you watch the film before you kind of continue with this but from this point on you know there's likely to be spoilers ahead um i think if we were doing this film today and i i think it actually it stands in such a way that it could easily be remade without very many changes at all um, and probably still have just as much potency i think the, the the fundamental messages and stuff are sadly far too far too relevant still um well, but bogdanovich we, said that himself i mean not that long ago he said that in, two, said, in, in 2012 after columbine uh yeah. it wasn't after call it was after no it was after something uh, else aurora, be aurora. aurora um he, he said that he was ashamed that he ever kind of made this film because of its violence but i, I mean I, that is a man who's considerably older kind of reflecting back on on something i don't think this is a film that glorifies violence at yeah, all it's um, a tragedy it i mean it's it's horrible but I, I i mean if we were to look at his character today um at, at the young fellow who, who the protagonist or the antagonist in this um 
we would probably say he was suffering from PTSD. You know, this is the, the aftermath of being at war and it's it's affected him in, in such a way. Whereas, uh, you know, you look at this in, in the era of 1968 and it, it's it's just a different film. Now, it was shot in 67. Um, so shot in 1967 as part of a, a deal with Roger Corman who basically put 125 grand into it and uh, said your only stipulation is that you can you have to use um, some footage from my film The Terror with Boris Karloff so it's an old Victorian film you also see a bit of Jack Nicholson in this he's in The Terror and um, then I've Karloff owes me two days of filming so you got Karloff for two days you've got to use a bit of stock footage from my other film and then just do whatever you want and that's how the film basically came about. It's just, it's just so classically Corman school of filmmaking, isn't it? Just like, here's some money, do the thing, okay? And you've got he... these random oh. um, parameters that you have to meet, but go and make things. And, you know, you do. You go off and you make something incredible. Well, all he, all he cared about was making his money back. I mean, he wasn't massively worried about it being great pieces of art. But it means that when you watch Roger Corman's films, is that you have some stuff that is complete. <laughs> dirge it's 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 horrible it's unbearable it's exploitational but then you've got these moments of pure brilliance i mean i love one of his wasn't that was or was that was that just random james cameron early filmmaking stuff um, I think Piranha might have been one of his. I think it probably was. Um, <laughs> Sounds like him. <laughs> I mean, Ben, I don't, I don't know how how conscious you are about Roger Corman, but he ends up in, you know, uh, providing starts in the show business for people like Francis Ford Coppola, for Joe Dante, who did Gremlins, for James Cameron, who does Titanic and Alien to Aliens and and uh, I don't know Avatar and stuff oh, like this. Um, I mean, everybody who was a filmmaker in America in the nineteen seventies and eighties started work for Roger Corman on really low budget pictures. But he believed in people. Roger Corman used to have a studio here in Ireland um, and churned out stuff. I don't think I knew that. Yeah. Uh. I remember hearing that and really wanting to go and meet him and I never managed to arrange anything. Wow. Um, I, I did get to, I mean, I have interviewed him. Um, we have it up on our website, in fact, these days. Um, for for another thing but i mean so he offered these great chances and bogdanovich who himself had been a film critic before he started making films um then gets this opportunity he's done a couple of bits on films and produces this really interesting and very distinctive first feature that i think any of us should be proud of i mean we've, we've talked before about orson wells a lot um orson wells is this great kind of like ingenue this great young fella who has these great visions and i think bogdanovich had all the same potential this is a man who who had a very distinctive kind of filmmaking mm. yeah i mean i suppose it, it's very telling the, the the fact that you know he's kind of res partially responsible for orson wells being regarded mm. um as an auteur director these days and basically responsible for kind of looking after Orson Welles at various parts of Orson Welles' life when, when things were not necessarily going so terribly well for Orson Welles. Um, no, no. I mean, they were, they were, they were friends. They worked together. Um, I've got his book somewhere of, of Bogdanovich interviewing Welles. I mean, like they were buddies. Sorry, Ben, everything's going to have to come back down to Orson Welles at some point. You know this by now. Um, but it's not even just that. I mean, the people who were involved in this in terms of filmic point of view, um, Sam Fuller, who's uh, another one of those great sort of American independent film directors, uh, ends up doing a a script rewrite on this. And uncredited. Then, and uncredited. Um, and you've got Hard Hawks, 
who we have not done a Hard Hawks film on this yet. At some point we should do. Yeah, we should. Hard Hawks is another one of those great Hollywood film directors. He did Westerns. He did did other kind of more mainstream films. Um, But he's also another one of those greats. And these are people that Bogdanovich was able to just call up and get them to do stuff for him. They were his friends. I mean, he, he, he sort of circled in this elite, which gives him an advantage that another filmmaker at the time wouldn't have. You know, when you've got the best people in the business that are helping you to to, to polish your script, to, to, to maybe give you a favor. I mean, Sam Fuller's advice to him was that save your budget for the final reel. You know, so that, that bit where they do the, the shootout on top of the, 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 the sort of the oil tanks. Mm. Um, that's that was done for no money very early on. Karloff was was used very sparingly. They they did the the shoot on top of the, the by the freeway in two days. Like that whole sequence is two days of filming. That's two days of filming. Yeah, all of Karloff's scenes were shot in two days. It's so Corman. <laughs> there is, the, <laughs> I mean, there's there's twenty minutes of Karloff in this that he shot over two days. Is Roger Corman just says like you know shoot ten minutes a day with him. Most films at this time are shooting like three minutes a day. Is a typical well, there's, average. There's this story about Roger Corman that I love, and I, I I tell it whenever I teach Hollywood New Wave, um, about how he had a set. I can't, and I'm not gonna be able to remember the details when I don't have my notes in front of me. But um, he has a set for another three days. Um, he's built the set for a film. He's finished shooting the film ahead of schedule. He's got the set for another three days. He's like, I bloody well paid for this set. Somebody write me a movie and we'll film it. And he bloody does. They film a movie in three days just because he wants to get the use out of the set because he's paid for it and he has it for three more days. It's just wonderful. That's just, it's, you know, and that's, that's, that's when you get strokes of genius. That's also when you get absolute crap. But you get strokes of genius that way as well. And I really think Targets is a stroke of genius. Um, I mean, Bogdanovich is not a director. I mean, I, I know his reputation. I know his 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 sort of the body of work. I haven't seen a lot of his stuff. Mm. Um, I've forgotten Mask was one of his actually, mm, like, which well, I have not, seen. Not, I've not seen that one. I to be fair, have um, you not? Cher is marvelous. I, I'm going through a Bogdanovich kick at the moment, so and I'm, I'm I'm loving what I'm seeing. But I mean, his way of doing this was was really economical. I mean, that stuff they shot at the three way. I was watching a thing about it yesterday. I mean, they had no permission to do any of that stuff. You're not allowed to shoot on the freeway in the in the US. That's brilliant. <laughs> and they went and staged like car crashes and everything. It's like that's, this is guerrilla. That's nuts. It's guerrilla filmmaking. And I'm, I'm watching that stuff, going like, how did they get permission? How do other people not see someone driving off the road and stop and try and help? Like he does. Sure, that, that woman that like tries to wave somebody down and then. And then she, <laughs> well, she gets shot in the back. Luckily, it's LA and nobody's going to stop, you know? <laughs> yeah, so they did that stuff in about two days. The whole sequence that they did at the end in the theatre took them a week. Like, they kind of, you know, it's so, so, I mean, his brilliantly economic. Um, but that was the advice that Sam Fuller gave him, was to, to kind of, like, save your money, use it at the end, have a nice explosive kind of big, big finale, which is pretty decent advice. Yeah, and I mean, it's that's the sort of thing that that you know is it's it's confidence that builds the ability to make those decisions. So having somebody at that kind of formative stage who's able to say, no, actually, your instinct is going to tell you to to do this, but do this instead. Mm-hmm. That's how you end up with a film like that. It is um, a good wee story. Is like it's, an, it's a good wee story. Yeah, um, it's very interesting how it develops. Um, like I, uh, I th- like as you said. Like I think if you re shot that thing nowadays, mm-hmm. 
Like, you wouldn't need to change much at all. No, I wouldn't have thought but Can so. you think of anything you would change in it, really? I think you'd have hard time getting the same resonance with the um, old guard of the horror cinema uh, making way for the new horrors of the sort of the, the mid to late 20th century because mm. that that falls that 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 flows out of a very specific moment um and oh, Karloff is amazing I again I know him from virtually nothing I know him from Frankenstein like everybody does um and then just seeing that very gentle softly spoken um Englishman um just just sort of he he, he lights up the screen Byron you didn't say goodbye stop it Jeremy don't be his errand boy yet it nauseates I didn't come out here because... I know you came out to save your own little opus. Well, that's true, because without you, there's no picture. Rubbish, anybody can walk through the special effects for you. Not that kind of picture, and there's nobody else for it. The part is you. Sammy, you're a sweet boy, but I'm, you I'm can't possibly understand what it feels like to be me. I'm an antique, out of date. All right, what are you going to do? Plant roses? Actors don't retire. About six months and you'll blow your brains out, Brian. I'm an anachronism. What does that mean? Sammy, look around you. The world belongs to the young. Make way for them. Let them have it. I think that, I mean, for me, that the, the way the two stories are woven together is masterful. Mm. Um, and I think that's a very specific historical moment. I think you would have to, I mean, unless you wanted to set it in that historical moment, I think you would then have to... to work out how you're going to have that same kind of resonance between the old guard handing over to the new guard um, in a modern context i mean i suppose you probably wouldn't have that but uh, the element about the i mean like when you look at this this is a mass shooting mm. and this is at a time when mass shootings in america seem slightly rarer than they are today where you know there's barely a, a fortnight goes by where you yeah. don't read about another one but for me that's where a lot of that kind of emotional heft comes from is that it's discussing the new horror mm. and i mean this is a horror that's going to sear itself deeply into the american psyche i mean it is just going to become the specter of gun violence um which of course you know it's not not necessarily a new thing but the idea of the mass massacres with with guns and um is, is something that that kind of is just becoming um a thing i think they referenced the 1966 um massacre as as part of the inspiration for this story um but you know you are also feeding into this this insanely destructive war that's that's bringing um young men home in body bags or missing limbs and profoundly disturbed by what they've seen um and sort of then kind of generating this next wave of generational trauma which is going to feed into this horror mm. so for me i think that is where a lot of that heft is coming from and i mean i just watching this i was just this is like a master class in um in, in kind of emotional and, and narrative nuance um the way those two stories are being sort of collided um and how they feed into each other and reinforce each other and and underline the messages of both stories which on the one hand seem completely disparate but it just i just I, I I just I I was kind of, I was captivated I was spellbound I was kind of blown away by the 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 care and the construction of this and then just discover that yeah actually it was just because Karloff was owed Corman a couple of days that's why it happened but 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 surely not surely this was the work of months of careful thinking no no had to use Karloff decided to use Karloff like this and go. <laughs> 
Uh, that's why I love Corman. And it's also, I mean, I think that, I think there's a thing where you can learn a lot um, about filmmaking and about how a good film comes together by watching some of what goes on in, uh, with Corman is that it's not, something that that takes it doesn't take years to make a feature film i mean he could turn them out and in, in, as you've said turn them out in a few days he was quite happy to do that and to turn out decent films in a few days this is what not. happens when imposter syndrome doesn't exist <laughs> <laughs> like, no no i make films this is what i do here's here's another one here's one i did five minutes ago well i think he just <laughs> knows i mean he, he has elements that he wants to include in them and as long as you get those elements and hit those beats it's like people who churn out uh, soap operas every day i mean they're able to do it because they know what's expected of them it shouldn't be rocket science and yet bogdanovich doesn't just do a painting by numbers i mean he actually produces something that's quite provocative and quite quite original and quite thoughtful now the bfi are releasing this um in the summer of 2022 on blu-ray finally uh in the, okay. in the uk so i mean it's gonna get i imagine in the months after this podcast is recorded and goes up the film will probably get a bit more attention and and will probably get a bit more of an audience it, it's sad that bogdanovich isn't gonna be around to see it but i i think he was aware of the respect and admiration that people had for this film and and for his stuff generally um are you aware much about about karloff ben no not at no. all no you're like saying names here i'm like talking about? <laughs> this is why we have ben on so oh, boris right. karloff or or to give him his, his his birth name actually his his always his name because he never legally changed it he's william henry pratt um born in 1887 i believe it was in um to an english indian family which is why he has that really dark complexion so he's the most english of men but he's also from that kind of uh sort of mixed heritage um, but he was a he was a British actor that went off to America, uh, started making films in, in the silent era, um, and then his rise to stardom. Well, there is a Hard Hawks film, the Criminal Code, that is featured in the middle of this that he was in. I saw this at the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> Smith's right. I am a museum piece. Howard Hawks directed this. I know. Yeah. Thanks to him, it was my first really important part. But most people will know him from his work for the Universal Horror movies. So he was the original big screen Frankenstein's monster. Right, which okay. He was just billed as Karloff in that film. Um, so it's an assumed name, but that, that is nonetheless how he was uh, recognised. And then he he made lots lots more. And by 1967, when this film is made, he essentially has come back to England. He's come back home. I mean, when they talk about Carl, about Baron Orlock coming home to England, he's always talking about Carlo was doing that. He he lived in a, a little village called Bramshot in England, in a in a house uh, called Roundabout. Basically, the road goes round the house. It's a, kind of a weird, lovely little place, and. Strange coincidence, Ben. I, you know, mum will tell you about going to visit Carlos' house. Um, she has remembers it from her youth because I think it was cousins of hers lived there, and Granny and Granda lived just up the road at one point. Seriously, that's so cool. I know. So I've always known about the house before I ever kind of like was consciously aware about who Boris Karloff was. Um, but Karloff himself was a you know he's a great British actor. I mean, at this point, he's very ill as well. I mean, you see him at points in this where he you can see his bowed leg, like his leg is just like. Like 
not straight. Um, he's carrying an oxygen cylinder around with him between takes because he, you know, he's struggling to breathe. He is, is, is part of a lung is all that's working. You know, he's emphysema. He's, he's suffering from all sorts of injuries. He is the grand old man of horror, but he is still churning out these films. Um, I, too. <laughs> I mean, for a work ethic, it's it's astounding. This and there's another film he did with a, 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 a young British director called Michael Reeves, uh, a film called The Sorcerers. And I think those two films were shot around the same time and they're just brilliant final pieces of work from this man. He did another few films in Mexico, which are, are atrocious. Um, but for kind of like an end of career thing. Now, hopefully then when you think about that and when you think about his history within horror, when you see his character on screen, it takes on a new resonance. Like the, he's he's sort of playing himself. Yeah. The films you see are Boris Karloff films. Yeah. That, I that, noticed that. that that did go out into cinemas. I mean, these aren't just things that he specially shot, or it's not been cobbled together. It's not like a Forrest Gump where they've stuck Boris Karloff in the middle of somebody else's film. It's like this was a Boris Karloff film called The Terror, um, that he shot for Roger Corman. Um, except now he's Baron Orlock, which is a nice little nod to Nosferatu. Nosferatu, yeah. <laughs> Ben's like what? <laughs> uh. So, it's yeah. it's just it's just so new wave. Um, whether you want to call it, you know, French new wave or Hollywood new wave, it is so new wave. It's so referential. It's so deeply embedded in in um sort of a reverence for past films and that kind of playful mixing of old and new and and the little kind of Easter eggs for fans like Orlock, Orlock, remember Orlock, Nosferatu, Orlock, um, and it's just it's it's just the delight and you know that's you're either going to love this or you're not going to love it i think and i love it because you know being a film nerd as well i i kind of delight in the little references that are just there for the people who have seen lots and lots of movies mm. um and you know it's which is kind of you know there it's the sort of the, the the hollywood new wave kind of just pleasing themselves and just going ha 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 look we've seen lots of films you've seen films too haven't you here's a little reference to your little film you've probably seen can you very, very briefly explain Hollywood New Wave to Ben? Because I realise this is not a term that he'll have come across very often, yeah. and you've mentioned it a few no. times. Yeah. So it has its roots in um, in in France. It was a French Nouvelle Vague. The French New Wave is a group of um, uh, film theorists turned film directors who start making their own movies because they they want to make the kind of films that they want to see, um, and they are sort of disrupting the kind of the, the the established cinema of the time but they're also um people who've seen loads and loads of movies and um they they've taught themselves movies by watching lots of movies and talking about movies so when they start making films it's just peppered with little references to the films that they've fallen in love with like right. um uh godard is a massive hitchcock fan and um breathless the film that you know if you've seen any french new wave you've seen breathless um it's, the souffle yeah the souffle one um it's it's got lots of little references to hitchcock as chabral also has like sort of shot by shot remakes um in films that have nothing to do with hitchcock but um so then it kind of gets transported to hollywood via um writings and via sort of other sort of up and coming directors and, and people who are interested in in film in hollywood they kind of take this mentality and there is a big revolution going on in film anyway because 
film has uh, and Hollywood has become very much fixated on um, widescreen and, and spectacle and just chucking loads of money at the screen and that's sort of diminishing returns so Hollywood's aware that there's an issue and it's aware that they have to kind of meet a new audience um, a new wave is how they do it um, and it's by kind of using these new directors this new blood that's come up that's for the first time actually studied film as an academic discipline and learned how to make films in a university or a college setting as opposed to you know you got just apprenticed sorry yeah just, just winging winging it. It. you got, you got <laughs> yeah. apprenticed to the studio and you you sort of started off by getting coffees for everybody and then maybe you got to change the camera reels and then if you were very very good maybe you got to be script supervisor and up you worked and up you worked and up you worked until you were director mm. these guys have studied how to do it so that's why they're coming in with their fancy camera angles like aha i know what would work here we'll have chiaroscuro lighting to represent blah but um as opposed to you know the the, the director's going we can't afford to light this properly so we'll have chiaroscuro lighting um so it, it's this new breed of directors young um passionate informed educated um film lovers who start making films um, and the kind of films they're making are violent. They have got sex in them. They've got nudity in them. They're countercultural. They're taboo pushing. So you've got the graduate is one of them. Um, you know, somebody seduces his, his girlfriend's ma. Um, and you've got Bonnie and Clyde where, you know, they, they, they go out and kill people and they're, they're killing the, the establishment basically. Um, I can see Ben getting very worried. Now. It's like a, if he responds in the wrong way to any of these titles, he knows they're going to end up on our list and he'll have to uh, watch them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't really want to do The Graduate, but I do Bonnie and Clyde. That's an interesting one. Um, so that hopefully gives you a bit bit more of a kind of sense about what's what's going on. Because I think yeah. it's important. For, and, and for anyone on, uh, who's listening to this who who isn't familiar with the terms or isn't familiar with the directors, the names, like that's okay because we all have to like find it from somewhere and it's very easy for us to assume that people know stuff um so thanks for the the explanation rachel because i think you probably explained it better than i would have no, I, used, I used to teach this stuff so <laughs> to, I mean, there, um to to students who thought that star wars was an old movie there, there are similar movements that happen you know in in, in britain as well and uh, you know this the stuff that happens in italy i mean so like there's a lot of of, of cinema makers are kind of there's a change that's happening in film but the Hollywood stuff is still going on. You're still getting all those big budget things. Um, but there are these other sort of people like, well, like Peter Bogdanovich, who is doing something that's, that's very different from everything else you're getting. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you, that, 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 that's, we've, we've talked a little bit about Karloff. There's a couple of other things I think that we, we have to talk about in this pod when we're talking about these films. I mean, Karloff, I think, is brilliant and someone I loved. And according to my uh, Letterboxd review of last year, he's the actor I watched most in films last year. <laughs> that doesn't surprise <laughs> me in the slightest. It surprised me slightly. It was I didn't him think or I'd watch, Price. I didn't think I'd watched that many Karloff films, but apparently I did. Um but the, I mean, obviously, the the story itself uh, is is based in part on the the, the story of, of Charles Whitman, who in was known as the Texas Tar Snapper, and in 1966, uh, he killed his mum and his wife with by knife. Then he went to the University of Texas at Austin and began killing people, shooting. Uh, what was it over the course of 96 minutes? He killed 14 people and wounded 31 others before being shot dead by the police. So 16, 16 adults, an unborn child, 
And then the 16th victim died 35 years later from injuries they'd suffered. They died from injuries they'd suffered? Yeah. So it, it took a while to get them, but, you know, it ultimately killed 17 people. Wow. Um, and it was something that, that was, was shocking. So Bogdanovich himself says that the, the, the first chunk of the film is essentially based on what actually happened with Charles Whitman. So the killing of the mother and the father. Sorry, the mother and the, and the wife. And the wife, yeah. Um, is pretty much what happens. So Bobby Thompson, when he does that, that that's based on, on a kind of reality. Um, and it's, I mean, it, I, I find it shocking. I find it deeply disturbing because you've got this all-American lovely family. You're like, I mean, it feels like you're watching some sort of 1950s sitcom perfection. Wash your hands, Daddy. We can eat right away. That's the best news I've heard all day. Hello, sir. Hi, son. How's it going? Okay. Hi, Mom. Hello, dear. Come on, sit right down. Hi, Bobby. How have you been? Just washing my hands. Oh, we were worried about you. You certainly came in quietly. We didn't hear the car or anything. Have you been home long? Just got it. Ah, that looks good. I didn't have time for lunch today. Oh, Bobby. We thank you for the food we're about to receive on the Lord's Day. And their, all their pastel colors and all their appliances. And look, there's the meatloaf out on the table. They're going to have dinner together. And then you've also got the guns, because Americans love their guns. I mean, that's a, I'm stereotyping, because I, I have plenty of American friends who don't love guns at all. Um, but then suddenly it's just like, out of nowhere, he, he goes on a, on a rampage. I thought it was weird the way he called his dad sir. Yeah, I think that's just a, a sort of southern states kind of. Yes, oh, sir. he's not southern states though, is he? He's um. Oh, I I think it's just California it's kind of uh, of its era, isn't yeah. it? That kind of well, deferential then, respect. I mean, if he's military as well, if he's mm -hmm. ex-military, they'll be taught that respect for your elders. I mean, I find it weirder that him and his wife are living with his mum and his dad. I find that more strange than than the, the than the sir thing but then i guess that's that's also like was part of the time you know it does happen you see it in lots of films and tv shows and i'm assuming they represent part of what goes on i love that um the wife says to the mom can i borrow your car and she says yeah the keys are in the ignition <laughs> that wouldn't happen in la today <laughs> in fact, they, i noticed i did notice that the only car that's locked um you, you actually see him carefully locking and unlocking the boot where his guns are stored Mm -hmm. I thought that was a, a quite a nice touch, actually. Um, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, locks, apparently, yeah, yeah. You locks just, everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, only if you've got guns, apparently. <laughs> otherwise, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's clearly a premeditated act. As well. In as much as it is, you know, and and as I think, yeah, it's it's kind of it's premeditated. In as much as once he snaps, he knows he's just going to go out and kill a lot of people. But I think the snap is never actually inevitable until it is. No, because he, he does actually ask. He, he mentions wanting to have a conversation yeah. that he doesn't get. Mm. I want to talk to you, Eileen. Hmm. What about? Hmm? I don't know what's happening to me. Why? Why well, get funny ideas? Like what? Oh, you mean like that I shouldn't go to work tonight? This is where I'm not too bad. And I felt that that was recognisable as somebody's kind of moment of reaching out where they're having a difficulty. 
um, which isn't to guilt somebody if you don't respond to somebody who's having a difficult moment because we've all got lives and sometimes we can't. Though he gets that positive reinforcement from his wife, you know, you could do anything you put your mind to. Mm -hmm. You don't think I can do anything, do you? I think you can do anything you want to if you put your mind to it. I don't know how they says. Anyway. So obviously he's like, you know, I'm a failure. I can't go, uh, you know, go ahead with pulling the trigger here. And then his wife, <clears throat> obviously he doesn't say that, but his wife, um, his wife says, no, you, you, you yeah. can do anything you put your mind to. And then the next, that, once she goes out to work, he goes uh -huh. out to the car, grabs the gun. He's already made up his mind because he's been told that yeah he can do this if he puts his mind to it so so inadvertently she has reassured him that actually the the horrible thing that he thinks he's going to do he is capable of doing yeah rather than sort of like you know you can go off and do a better job sort of thing yeah. i yeah. totally missed that that's really really interesting um because i was i was thinking you know yes we can see that this is a man stretched sort of really really tight just about to snap mm -hmm. but he's presenting such a great front that i think everybody around him is quite justified in not picking up the fact that he's about to commit mass murder because he's walking around with a great big smile on his face and and you know even when he says i need to talk to you about something mm -hmm. um there's no sort of sense of great sort of Im Im impending doom about it it's just you know he might very well be wanting to have a chat with her about what they're going to do that weekend hmm. from the the way he approaches it with her um i don't honestly think one could fault the family for not seeing that coming because he's not necessarily presenting this this image of somebody who is in crisis until the very moment when he is clearly just gone mm. i mean there's unsurprisingly i guess we've come back down to another mental health issue in the, on, on this <laughs> on our show um there there is definitely elements of of that and in some respects it seems quite quite ahead of its time and its awareness that uh, even though it's not made explicit i think the we're probably meant to draw more out of the the war experience than we are out of his unstable mind but the, there's there's some there's a, there's a correlation there but there's there is another element <clears throat> See, I never picked up on the whole war thing. No. It's it's quite subtle, and I think from, from memory, the only reference I got to it... The photo? Was the photo, yeah, which didn't, like to I, fair, I, look I remember that like the, him. I remember the photo, but I thought that was a picture of his dad. Like, I thought mm. that's why there was guns everywhere, and... So did I, to be fair. You um, know, I and... Mean, it, I thought he was like his behavior at the start is just really bizarre. Um, I mean the the way it's geared up is is obviously he puts Karloff in his sights pretty early on. Yeah, mm -hmm. and the assumption is that I mean my assumption, even watching it again, like I've seen this multiple times, was that he is targeting Karloff from the off. That that is the whole. I intention. thought. I thought. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I thought he was going to kill him. Yeah. at the end. Yeah. Yeah, so um, did I. like, well, like that, I thought that's how the movie was going to end. Well, let us get to that in a second because I, I do want to talk about that confrontation. Um, so you have you you have that, and then um, there is uh, then there's the, the incident with his father, where he lines his father up in his sights, mm. 
and then pretends that, oh, I'm just fiddling with my sights. Oh, I'm such a dick. Just checking um, the re- recalibrating the <laughs> elevation or whatever he said. I mean, it's odd in a way that he... That, that, is it odd that the first violence that he perpetrates is on women? I, I mean, like, he literally goes for the most vulnerable people, I guess, in his house, rather than his father. Yeah. Dad who, gets away. And yet, there, there's also something quite odd because he because he lines his father up for a killing. I mean, he looks like he's contemplating it at a point where his father would be similarly um, unable to defend himself. Mm-hmm. It's an odd choice, but then it, it, I suppose if you're basing this entirely on, on the truth of the story, which was that the guy went and killed his mum and his wife and then put them back into bed and tucked them up. Sort of, as Bogdanovich says, he, he buries them mm-hmm. in their beds. Like that's an intimacy and a, and a kind of um, a tenderness almost in an act of pure psychopo- psychopathy. Mm. That's weird. It's uncomfortable. It is, it it is. is weird. I, I, I find it really uncomfortable. And for years after this, um, I like see if I ever goes past one of those kind of silo things. <laughs> I, feel right. una- I feel uneasy. Yeah. Because I expected to be someone up there shooting down at me, and it, like coming from Northern Ireland, I mean, like and being a child of the eighties, there was kind of a fear of somebody shooting you randomly anyway, because that happened here. Um, and yet, you wanted to to screen this as a as a drive-in. Ah, oh, think it'd be brilliant as a drive-in movie. It would, yeah. I'm just saying, you know, you're trying to inflict your nightmares upon others, though. Yeah, a little bit. Um, well, I mean, the, the, well, the, there, there's another element to this film is that, that, that Peter Bogdanovich does this thing where across his films he seems to constantly be paying homage to film history. Mm. And here we have a drive-in movie theatre, which is itself, culturally, it's something that here in the UK we don't really get. Drive-in movie theatres here, whenever those sorts of screenings are set up, do not run like a drive-in movie theatre does. They would work so well in this there, um, yeah. current situation wouldn't they yeah i would i would absolutely everyone would that. be able to go to the movies and watch a movie yeah. if we mm-hmm. had a proper drive-in yep. without the worry of getting a nasty illness well I, I mean i mean you see how they i mean what i love is this is almost like a like a documentary of a form of culture that we have lost well even and the whole the way the film works and how the guy like changes the reel, the wee bell, bell goes off, and he's uh-huh. oh, I need to change to the other. Um, that's reel that's, here. that's the real projectionist who appears in the film as the projectionist. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also a big kind of cultural history moment there as well, mm-hmm. because you know that that the the driving is kind of instrumental in rescuing Hollywood cinema um, mm-hmm. after after the audience disappears in the fifties. Yeah. Um, it's, it's because you know it wasn't it wasn't television and hollywood decided it was television was causing the issues and it wasn't it was that um it, the, the the sort of migration out of the city had happened and drive-ins were convenient if you lived in the suburbs and you mm-hmm. had kids um so there is there's a cultural moment here being referenced as well and, and I, I don't know how visible that was at the end of the 1960s because it was still very much in motion but um, I, I mean, from my understanding, the drive-ins at this point were already starting to... Were they to sort of, to decline? Yeah, there, there was a movement. I mean, drive-ins were big in the States. They were also big in Australia. Um, I went to a drive-in in Australia and it was brilliant. 
was it was it like that did it have the cambers on the on the like because this is one of the things i noticed is like i drive a movie here they'll stick you in a field or a car park and you're all on the same level but if you look all the cars are angled so oh, it's like an amphitheater isn't it yeah, yeah. Um, i'm pretty sure it was all on the level here but um you you tuned in you, you tuned into the radio and you tuned in the radio the, yeah, yeah it was great and then you sat in the back with your duvet and you, you had your popcorn and it was fantastic Saw so the cool. Incredibles on a drive-in in on the Gold Coast of Australia. Loved it. <laughs> I mean, I, I would, I would love to go to a proper drive-in. I, I've not really, I've never been to one, but I would like to do a traditional kind of proper drive-in movie theater that has. I don't know if any of them are still around from from the fifties and sixties. There's bound to be a couple. I wouldn't but have it, thought so. <laughs> but it is, it is a whole different way of a cinematic experience. Yeah. And the scale of it is so vast. I mean, you go into a theatre today and you've got something that's a bit like a house in a room and that's quite big. But you look at that screen, that screen is ginormous. And then you look at the car park. There are those glorious overhead shots. And at the end a... of the movie, sure, as well. You know, but when you just see that lone car. That mm-hmm. is amazing. I just, I, oh, wow, wow, it's amazing. And then all the oil spots um, <laughs> where every single car is leaking oil. But you've got this notion where Carlos going to do an in-person appearance and he beats this tiny, tiny figure, like, mm-hmm. on the tor- on this tiny stage in front of this vast screen. It's It's such a strange other form of life. And it seems so alien, and it, it is this very precise kind of moment. And I think that's one of the, the, the lovely things about this. I mean, the footage that they have of them setting up for the cinema is real footage that they shot in a test shoot. Like, this wasn't stuff that they shot specifically for. They went out, did a test shoot to see how it looked, and they used the footage, because, again, it was the economy of a, of a Roger Corman production. It's like, we've shot some film, we're going to stick it in. Well, we're no not going to shoot it anything. twice. That's twice the amount of film. <laughs> We do, we don't need lights. Let's just use what we've got, natural lighting, and it has a different kind of feel to it. But it works so well. Yeah, I see that whenever the natural light fades, like you could really see that your man's struggling whenever he's doing the shooting. <laughs> you know, he can't see anybody because no. it's so dark. It's so dark. Um, I think we 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 probably do need to touch on that that final kind of conclusioning moment with the the. the the bringing together of the two narratives mm. for Karloff's second day on set. <laughs> his, <laughs> his second 10 minutes. Uh, like, I mean, I love how much they got out of him. I love that sequence with him and Peter Bogdanovich getting drunk in the hotel room <laughs> and, and just kind of doing it. I love that interplay between the two of them, you know, where he wakes up and the, the first thing he, I wake up and the first thing I see is Baron Orlock. Oh, is yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. And then Karloff sees himself in the mirror. And, yeah, and, <laughs> and jumps, yeah. It's like, this is so lovely. And it's just like such a nice moment because I think that people had a perception of Karloff as well as a performer. I and he certainly was... did. No one's afraid of a painted monster. The only thing you've said that's right is about this. Which is why you ought to do my movie. You don't play some phony Victorian heavy... You play a human being, and you could play the hell out of it. He's very capable of doing very serious straight drama, as well as the horrors and the shocks. But also, he's a lovely comedic touch, mm-hmm. which, you know, he, he had used in a, in a number of films with, with like, Vincent Price, Basil Rathbone, and Peter Laurie in, re- in recent years. Um, but then there's that, that, that final confrontation 
that that final kind of moment of of that that's the horror moment really isn't it it yes but it's also like the the, the new wave moment isn't it it's also the look how, how how much I know about film moment and and look how much I know about how to construct film and look how much I know about how to make points with film and look how much I know about how to make artifice and it's just it's it's just demanding that you engage with the film as a film. It's just glorious. Somebody's drunk. The last scene, and whenever that, the... whole, I mean that that very last scene, that whole sequence in the the drive-in movie theater, that 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 conclusion to the chaos. I was expecting your man to get gunned down <laughs> by the police <laughs> instead of beaten up by an old man with a cane, <laughs> slapped about. <laughs> You silly little boy. How dare you? How dare you? <laughs> it's English way of At one of my it? movies? No. over my knee, young man. Yes. Um, I didn't, I didn't, whenever I was watching it, I didn't quite get to hear what he says. Because your man ends up carring in, in the corner all closed up. Like, there, what, there, what does your man say? That guy afraid of. What does that mean? Because there's the point early on where he's Carlo, or, or, or Locke, or Oh, Carlo. oh, is that is that in reference to you know I'm o- I'm only going to be the scary monster thing? That yeah, he was saying? Well, he's he's talking earlier on. He says you know that he's outdated. He's an antique. He's he's out of place, out of time. And then he shows the newspapers and says this is the real horror. And they're, they're looking at stuff in the newspaper about what's going on and, and mm-hmm. Vietnam and guns mm-hmm. and. Like he's scared of that. He says that's the horror, and then he comes into the situation, and your man is busy shooting away. And obviously, he has no idea at first that there's a there's that literally people are being gunned down around him. And then it's pointed out that then he sees the guys going off with a gun, and against any sensible person's instinct, completely unarmed. I mean, you have a whole crowd of vigilantes there, and Orlock Karloff walks forward. Just with the stick, which is there to support his weight. It's not actually a weapon. That that is his his means of conveyance. Um, and he goes forward, and it's that confrontation. Is like he is scared of being out of place because there is this new terror. There is this new thing, and the the form of that new terror is this child. Basically, it's it's mm. it's this silly little man, this this barely an adolescent, who is himself terrified. Because in that moment, I mean, you see his look as he, he darts between seeing Karloff coming towards him as a, as a real physical creature and Karloff up on screen, also advancing towards him. And it's, it's in this weird moment where I think like the reality of the situation becomes blurred. Um, I, 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 I may even hazard to say, Ben, like he feels like he is caught in the Matrix in this moment. Right. <laughs> okay. I mean, in modern parlance, that's what yeah. it is, though, isn't well, it? It's like you, there's a glitch. See what I don't get there. Like, it's like, how do you mistake a 30 foot, whatever, tall screen figure mm. 
for a real person like he shoots at the screen i i oh so i think that the the thing that, that about that is he has dealt with all his killings apart, apart and fair enough apart from his wife and his mum but a lot of his killings have been done through the long lens of a rifle so everything has been at a distance through a screen and probably like a lot of the killing he may or may not have done in wartime well, would have no, been um, at a distance and removed the guy he killed well apart from the house at the start and the guy um who works the at tanker. the oil tanker yes because he, he gets startled and then he shoots him and then runs off but they're they're, they're people he doesn't see i can't even say they're people he doesn't know because obviously he because knows the, his wife the, and his it's 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 and the Mom. grocery boy there, there is something i think there is something different about that but if you if you take this as you're a person right who grows up and this is somebody Ooh. who embodies on-screen horror and for you that's the person that would have terrified you going to the films as a kid right yeah. so you've grown up with this as being a, a figure of horror mm -hmm. there is still a, a disconnect between seeing them there and then seeing them in the flesh I don't know if you've ever met any any kind of celebrity actors. There is a, I mean, I find there's a disconnect. Well, obviously, I've met some celebrities, celebrities. actors, and I've been like, "Wow, you're small." <laughs> we'll not talk about <laughs> Kit Harrington. <like> <laughs> um, but the, even, but there is even though, some of there? them other ones. But you know, yeah. Well, I suppose it. There is, I mean, it's different, I guess, if you're, you know, if you're working with them and then you you see their work after. But if you've gone the other way around. Yeah. Um, like, I remember the first time I encountered Tom Baker um, and being very, even though I knew everything else, like, always seeing him on screen and then seeing him in the flesh, there is a sudden, like, this this is not right. Mm. I, mean, I mean, Rachel, it's probably the same for you, seeing Adam, bro. I, I, I've got to say, he was exactly who I thought and expected. Um, only just, you know, every bit, every bit as gentle and lovely as one would expect of of his reputation. Oh, I don't know. Um, I guess I, guess I was hoping that between us we might actually tease that one out. Who knows then why he he takes the reaction he does? He's just a bit freaked out in that moment. I think probably because he's run out of bullets. Um, and he's yeah, not. Well, he's his his mind is not in a sane place. I suppose he went into like real frantic mode. Yeah. Um. At the end, you know. Oh no! I've dropped all my bullets. I'm trying to reach for them. I can't get them. And all I have is this one pistol left in my army bag. Mm -hmm. Um. That has any ammo in it. I just took it like reality was not his friend by this point. He'd no, I, I don't think so. So completely, he he reverts though. I mean that 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 final thing of him fetal like is is him reverting back to an, a, you know a childhood mm -hmm. state. But then whenever he gets picked up and chained, like he doesn't he doesn't show any. It's just bizarre that behavior. There's he, also and then whenever he gets cuffed and taken away by the police, like his that childlike thing to mm. the confidence or whatever he has. Whenever he's being taken off by the police, is it's very different. I don't. I mean, I really don't know what to think about it. I think it's one that that it's worth 
positing after watching the film and, and, and kind of just mulling over um, mm. about how you feel about that character, about what's going on with him. Arguing um, about it on Twitter. Um, the one other thing I, I wanted just to very, very briefly mention, because um, I've been on a bit of a Peter Bogdanovich binge uh, over the last week, um, is it really strikes me his use of music in the films is, is quite distinctive. And I don't know if either of you have picked up on it. I'm going to leave this one to my learned colleague because I never pick up on music stuff ever. To be, well, I only really noticed the whole music thing anytime your mom was driving around in the car listening to the mm. radio. That's the point. It oh. Is oh, then the I did notice then. Oh, my God. <laughs> The score in this film and in most of Bogdanovich's films that I've seen so far uh, is entirely diegetic. That means it is only the sounds that you hear within the world of the film. I was reading that about the last picture house, yep. or the last picture last show. Picture show. Yeah, which, which is, I haven't is, seen. It's, it, I mean, I watched it the other night and it's brilliant, but it is entirely diegetic. It means that like everything you hear is only what the characters will hear, which I think adds to... That makes sense. That makes sense, even with the whole like TV thing. Because mm-hmm. the TV's blaring, and then he walks into the other room. And TV gets quieter. Yep. Um. Yeah. No, that's cool. Thinking about it, that. Yeah. So I mean, just as a, something to think about. So if you if you happen to watch this film again, um, it's something just to to kind of be aware of because I think it makes everything seem so much more realistic, mm. and to me, adds to the horror because the Karloff films would have been score the whole way through. Um. Whereas this, it's not. It. I mean. No matter how much there's, there's actually still quite a bit of music here, but it's entirely what he's experiencing. It's not what we are. As it a, comes. It doesn't. It comes down to, well, the perception, whether conscious or not, of being manipulated emotionally mm. by the musical. I mean, you you're every bit as manipulated emotionally by the the diegetic music because mm-hmm. that's always a decision it's not there by accident um and i'd be amazed if all of that was actually diegetic and and not um uh, sort of layered over in post um because it's it's used strategically it may be layered on in post but it is understood as diegetic yes no that i i agree with you yes i agree with you but um it, it's sort of giving the impression that oh we just happen to be um, uh, we just happened to be tuned to this radio station at this particular time. We've no control over what happened, oh. whereas you know you have complete control over what's what's playing, and it is oh, no. still very manipulative. Um, oh, no, absolutely, like the whole the whole shoot at the at the you know the, the the tower thing. I mean, was done mute. They didn't record any sound on that. That's all post production sound. Yeah. Um, because it was cheaper. Well, I'm I'm sort of talking about like the 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 artifice. You know, they, yes, but... they buying into the whole, oh, this is definitely this is definitely more naturalistic, quote unquote, um, because we haven't layered on any non-diegetic music. We're not manipulating your emotions in the same way. Whereas actually, yeah, you are. You're total liars. You're definitely manipulating your emotions. You're just being really, really underhanded about it. Oh, no. I mean, I, I actually think it gives a sense of unease. I mean, for me, it, mm. it, it, it I mean, I, it really enhances the mood that I have when I experience the film is, is by having that diegetically rather than sort of an overt um, score. Fun game you can play with your friends while watching movies is what I like to play with students called diegetic or non-diegetic hours of fun with that students loved it when i played that with them i'm not sure ben's convinced by that one. <laughs> <laughs> no they Folks, did not uh, love that game 
um, I, I'm, I'm going to wrap this one up here because I, I, I think we've had a, a pretty decent natter about uh, Peter Bogdanovich's targets and um, I'm, I'm glad the two of you actually seem to like it because yeah, that was a cool, cool movie yeah. I'm always filled with trepidation when I fire you suggestions through, as you should like, be they come back and go it's shit Bob why are you making us watch that I made um, you guys watch The Room so I can say nothing this is, this is true I thought we'd get through a week without mentioning that film but <laughs> don't watch Here to remind that you. do watch that movie it's great thank you very much uh, Ben and Rachel no problem thank you um, I'll, I'll post social media links and stuff for the relevant things on our sleeve notes which will be on our website www.cinepunk.com do follow us on our socials we're on Instagram we're on Facebook we're on Twitter and we're also in YouTube um, so find us in all those places give us a follow give us a like uh, if you enjoyed this podcast and you've listened to it for the first time any of our shows at all and you like it hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're on and do listen again and uh, tell your friends and family and all sorts of people that like films that we exist um, and we'll be back in your ears very very soon uh, and apart from anything else go and watch Targets uh, it's available via streaming services at the moment it'll be available on Blu-ray later on in the year in the UK and there's always other Bogdanovich films to explore as well Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. and gentlemen, boys and girls, there should be a pin spot to I receive on my face as I'm talking. Ladies and gentlemen, I've devised a torture test between your writer and my Ronson Comet. Put your thumb on the side of your lighter. Squeeze the light out of it. The Ronson Comet can. Find a dangerous, windy place and see if your flame will blow out. The Ronson Comet won't. Now, twist its neck. And see if your lighter carries two spare flints and a replaceable spark wheel. The Ronson Comet does. Carefully turn out the lights and adjust your flame to cigarette, cigar, and pipe. Now try to inject your lighter with life-giving butane. One gulp from the Ronson multi-pill and the Comet can light for months. If your lighter can't do half the things the Ronson Comet can, get one and have your own torture test.